Hello and welcome to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm Rebecca Valentine and I'm joined today by... Matt Handrahan. Chris Dring. And Hayden Taylor. We are here, as always, to discuss the latest games industry news and headlines, uh, starting with the question, is this podcast political? Are games political? No, we're not answering that. Uh, that's Is that even a helpful question to ask? Uh, there was an interview earlier this week published in Kotaku with uh, Ubisoft VP of Editorial, um, uh, I'm French, uh, Tommy Fran- Francois, is that how you say it? Francois, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, that was It was broadly about the kind of weird spotlight that's fallen on Ubisoft lately where people ask them in all these contexts if their games are political and they say they aren't, but then their games obviously do have political things to say. Um, it, there, there's a lot going on in that interview. Uh, one of the points he made um, was that they wanted to showcase a number of different points of view across their games, not just focus on one. Uh, but I think what we want to talk about uh, regarding this and a lot of the discussions around games like Call of Duty and Ubisoft's library is uh, something our own contributing editor um, Rob wrote about today in his regular editorial, which is that asking publishers and developers the question, is your game political, is sort of an unhelpful question to ask in the first place, right? Yeah. Well, uh, Rob, Rob's point, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, uh, Rob's, Rob's point, I think, and, uh, and it is a helpful one. And we have to be careful here because, as Rob tends to do, he makes very good arguments that seem to kind of close down the subject altogether. And we can't allow him to do that today because we have time to fill up. But, uh, but Rob's point was this um, that journalists have become fixated on getting publishers to admit that their games are political. Um, and publishers are very reluctant to apply the word political to their games and not necessarily because their games are not political but because the word political has become something of a dog whistle to a very loud vitriolic part of the gaming community which can be very unhelpful when it comes to selling your game to the public um, so in effect this this uh, this whole the both sides have uh, conflicting agendas and the actual value valuable discussion is getting kind of lost between these two these two poles. I think the uh, the biggest problem with it is is the use of language around this discussion is just incredibly vague. Um, like political, I think a lot of people interpret that as very contemporary. Who do you vote for? Sort of political. Um, I mean, one of the one of the comments beneath Rob's piece piece on Twitter is basically, uh, I'll just find it now. It's a uh, no, Sonic wasn't about Republicans or Democrats. God of War wasn't about the Gulf War. Pong wasn't about Vietnam. It's like, that's not... I mean, Sonic the Hedgehog was about environmentalist issues. You know, it had, There's a, a, an environmentalist message at the core of that game. It, it's an inherently political game. But when we talk about politics, because we use the word politics, people think of it as, you know, like the House of Commons or prime minister or the tories or the republicans or w- whatever your sort of political infrastructure is in your country and they think it's about who do you vote for and you see it in the way that companies respond to questions about it's is your game political they often respond along those lines as well uh, there was the case a, a little while ago back in october last year with the coo of ubisoft massive talking about whether um, the Division 2 was political. And he spoke about it, um, it was on stage at Sweden Game Arena in October last year, and he spoke about quite a lot of different things, but there was this thread running through it of, you know, we don't want to tell you who to vote for. And I don't think anything about the Division is even remotely relevant to who you should vote for. Like, that game is still for lack of a better term, it's still political because it's about 
sort of uh, sleeper agents who take up as armed militias when like society collapse and collapses like there is there are human themes in there and it's like what does what does that reflect about our times but it's not about whether or not you should vote for democrat or republican and i think the entire discussion just gets swamped in this very like rigid definition of political and it's not about that but this is exactly the argument that the call of duty developers um made that basically because they weren't using specific names of existing political parties, it was therefore not a political game and never possibly could be. So, which is to say that, so like, say there's this child soldier level, which, is that being confirmed or is that still like speculation unconfirmed? I don't suppose it matters too much. It has a child soldier level. But because they don't say whether the child soldier is in Libya or the Congo, it's therefore not a political subject matter. That's, uh, so that's like, no, I mean, and th- these are strong terms, but that's that's if if that's sincere, that's intellectual cowardice. If, but we know it's not. It's it's a corporate imperative. Um, they are not allowed to engage with these subjects. And like Rob makes this point very well, um, which he says, "What what like I, I'll quote a little bit from from him. Um, Developers place importance on allowing players from different backgrounds to feel welcome and represented on the powerful themes and messages they hope will resonate." you know, what you or I might call all the politics of their games. Um, these developers are very smart people. They sit down and they figure out these storylines and they know exactly what they're doing and the political weight of what they're doing. Um, we're not dealing with sincere, good faith responses here, which is which makes it difficult to talk about, I think, because what, what, what we're really dealing with is the stakes around using a single word in application to any game made by a AAA publisher in 2019. Because that word, as Hayden illustrates, it gets leapt upon by people that basically don't have a very good understanding of what that word actually uh, covers. Hmm. I, don't, I don't think it helps either. And I, I actually kind of agreed with a lot of what Tommy said uh, in, his, in his Q&A, a little bit. Um, well, at least the bit where he was talking about how um, you know they like to present loads of different viewpoints and sort of lead the gamer to sort of come up with their own conclusions. I think with video games, more so than you get in film, and more so than you get in actually films like a scriptwriter, a producer, a director, they come together, they come up with a story, and then they and then they hire people bespoke for that project. You know, books are written tend to be written by one or two people, and 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 same with music. Whereas games are built by teams, companies. And I was interestingly looking at Watch Dogs Legion and I thought, you know, I think there was a lot of people trying to see if there was an anti-Brexit message in Watch Dogs Legion. And I sort of go, it's hard for them to do that because there's 500, I don't know how many people are making that game, but, you know, it could be 400, 500 people are making that game. And they're, and they're not being hired on especially to do it. It's kind of been assigned to them. One of the studios working on it is Ubisoft Reflections, which are based in the northeast of England, which are overwhelmingly voted for Brexit. And so, you know, it, you end up having these, um, you end up having these sort of, um, situations where, um, if you, as a creative director, do you sit there and go, no, we're going to deliver this sort of political message, this opinion, this idea of vote for X or Y, which I think some people mistake the conversations for, um, uh, even though the majority of the company, act, you know, not even the majority of the company, some people in this team may not agree with that, may not be happy with that, they'd be unhappy working on a game like this. Um, and I think that's probably why it's harder, particularly AAA, especially AAA, to deliver a single political message when it's a game built by those of people that have those different opinions and feelings about those things um and i think uh, yeah but then I, I feel like that's where a lot of this gets lost though isn't it because that's not really what the question is asking 
The question, when someone talks about is the game political, they're not saying does it have a defined political message, but that is effectively how the question is being responded to. And that's kind of where all of it gets muddied because the, the response to the question isn't actually answering the question. It's not actually answering what the question is driving at. And then here again, we're kind of getting caught up. We're talking about where the game's political. When actually, like, Rob's, um, Rob's founding principle of his piece is, of course these games are political. That's not a very useful thing to talk about. Yeah, but so so Tommy's response. So my point was that Tommy Tommy was basically saying our games aren't political; they're like this, which is political, right? Which is the point. You know, it's still political just because they're like this. However, I thought that answer was fine. If he might have misunderstood the term political and, and described it in a different way, but ultimately, when he said, "No, we want to present all of the uh, all of the, the whole picture and, and present all different viewpoints and angles," I'm like, "Well, yeah, that's fine. That's still political. Yeah. All the all um, different and, political viewpoints and angles." Yeah, yeah. This is what I mean about like the the word political just not being a helpful word because people have different interpretations of what political is. You know, the, really the questions which, which Rob highlights in his piece is like it, those aren't really the questions we should be asking. It's like you know what what does your game have to say? That's that's a question. Like because even if a game is created by you know eight hundred people, there is still like a creative director or creative core that has something they want to say with their game and it could just be that the status quo is great and we love it but that's that in, in and of itself is a for lack of a better term a political statement um and i think going back to your point earlier chris where you said it's it's hard to kind of make games have sort of clear political themes when there are lots of people you know hundreds of people working on it i i would be kind. Of, I would. I'd kind of dispute that, really, because you see it in in movies and TV and all sorts of things where there are very politically charged uh, bits of media that have huge teams of people working on it. But it's it is like the, it is the creative vision of whoever is driving it, and that's ultimately what overrides everything. So I don't know if that's really an excuse that the games industry can use for shying away from difficult topics. Yeah. Plus, plus the teams do have like narrative specialists. So like you have. 500 people working, but they're not all working on the narrative and the story. So that, that could be, and even at Ubisoft, that could be as few as five or six people. Yeah, no, so, so the TV shows and films are created bespoke. Those teams, they're not, there's not a company that makes TV shows. Well, there is, but there's about five people working on that company. And then they hire people, you know, specifically for that project. You know, it might be a pro-Trump video. You know, you're not, you need to hire camera people, special effects people, all that kind of stuff. But they'll, and those people have to make a decision on whether or not they work on that project because it's a, it's a freelance industry. Whereas the games industry, actually, on a whole, particularly the AAA industry, it, is, it isn't. So when you're forcing, I don't know, 100 people at Ubisoft Reflections to write it, make a game, you're going to have an unhappy team if that game is specifically... But this isn't about... That isn't the point. I mean, the point, you, that, that's just... That was me sort of going... Um, uh, Tommy's a point about uh, 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 the games allow you to explore loads of different avenues, is, which I think is, is, is fine in AAA. You're going to get that because people who make those games are all different types of people in all different countries and they'll all have different views and they're all working on it together. You know, they're paid a salary. You know, they're, not, they're, not, they're not told, hey, do you want to work on the anti-Brexit game? They're being told to. Um, so it's, um, so it's the... Um, but... Um, but you know, I, but ultimately, my point wasn't so much about that. It was that I kind of agreed with Tommy's point, and there was a lot there of a backlash about from people about him sort of dismissing the journalist journalism side of things. But even if a game does have a political message, 
or even a message of any description. You know, it could be an environmental message, like um, take the new game by uh, Patrice Tessolet. It's all about, it's an environmentalist message, that game. And, um, you know, he actually didn't want to tell me what the message was. When I interviewed him, he said, oh, it's got this environmentalist thing, but I don't want to tell you it. I want you to play it. I want you to play it and discover it. And this is, if I've got a message in this game, and I'm trying to, if I've got a message in this game, I want you to discover it. I want you to understand it and appreciate it. I don't really want to tell you it in an answer, in an interview. I want you to experience the game and, and, and discover that message and understand it and appreciate it. Yeah, and that's another reason why, it's another reason why when, you know, you get some developers that sort of come along and sort of go, uh, you know, they go, uh, you know, they, if a game does have a particular political message that aligns with one side, they don't really want, they want the other side to play it as well. You know, and so if you end up, if, I, if somebody told me that Watch Dogs or whatever it was a pro-Brexit game, I wouldn't want to play it. But if somebody said to me it's a game that sort of explores Brexit, I'd be, in, I'd be interested in that. But then isn't that, but isn't, that, isn't that the point, right? Why can't Ubisoft just say we are engaging with Brexit and the aftermath of Brexit as a subject will show all sides? That makes it a political game. This is the, this is the thing. This is the, this is, this is the, the, the cowardice at the heart of what the way the AAA industry is responding is that they are just saying no, it's not political, and they're outlining their reasons why, and it, and their reasons why illustrate that it is. They're contradicting themselves. Yeah. I think to like go go along with that, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about Ubisoft and Matt. You mentioned uh, Call of Duty earlier, and when we're talking about AAA, that that brings Call of Duty up, right? Like they they have Chris and I were talking the other day. They have this this game that has evolved in such a way where they have a single player campaign where they claim to be, you know, they say it's not political uh, pretty clearly, but they, they are, they say that they're trying to say something about, about war or something or other. And, and they have these things like they have, like you said, this whole child soldier thing. Um, but then they have the multiplayer component and there, there was the whole kind of controversy about them, including, I guess, like white phosphorus in there or something. Um, and, you know, various, various things that are considered like war crimes, um, you know, maybe being offered as a reward for accomplishing certain things in the game. And it seems like there's kind of this weird juxtaposition in Call of Duty, right? Where the single player campaign, maybe, I, I mean, this is a new game, I've not played it yet, but I assume that the, the single player campaign is going to have the same kind of message that other single pl player campaigns in Call of Duty have had, that war is scary and bad and affects people and horrible. And then the multiplayer campaign is going to be, yeah, war's fun. Everybody get together with your buddies and, you know, go to war. It's, we're going to have a great time together. Like, like there's two sides of the game that are kind of like juxtaposed against one another and i think it's like i think it's fair to you know approach them and say look you have you have these two different things and i understand that you can't really get rid of well i guess they did get rid of the single player campaign uh the other year didn't they um but you can't, you can't really you know have call of duty one without the other but at the same time they they seem to be directly in conflict with one another and i think it's fair to you know ask them to say something a little more specific about that than just going well play the game well if i play the game i'm getting two entirely different messages yeah, I mean, I, but I think there's there's also another side to that um, as well, and it, and it goes to what Chris was saying. Where basically, the, the reason why they they don't want to admit what is plainly obvious, which is to say, having a child soldier level is exploring a political theme or idea, regardless of whether you say they're in the Congo or Syria or wherever it might be, um, is about selling games. And this is kind of the distasteful part of it. And I, and I think this is why journalists are keen to press them on it because. They're not taking responsibility for their own creative choices. And that is actually an important thing. Um, it actually takes me back a little to, to when I first started writing about games. Uh, Braid came out. And Braid, uh, the Jonathan Blow game, platformer, it was a platformer with a time-windy mechanic. But it was actually also, uh, and I'll just say it like this, even though it does sound a bit 
a bit uh, a bit pretentious, which is exactly what the game has been. But it was like a meditation on regret and loss and all of these things. It's about uh, the passing of a relationship and all of that stuff. I remember very clearly when that game came out, a lot of reviews criticised it for being pretentious. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, like if there's one thing that games could probably do with being a little bit more of, it is pretentious. It's actually trying to do things that are maybe a little bit beyond their grasp. And like to see, you know, quote, people who are identified very strongly as gamers tearing something down for trying to be more than just a bit of fun. Um, kind of, yeah, depressed me a little bit. We're now in an era where actually that happens all the time. Games, like, you know, uh, to, to use an example, Papers, Please, for example, which is an equivalent kind of game. It's a tiny little indie game. No one's accusing Papers, Please of being pretentious anymore. There's an acceptance that games can do this. So I understand why, why journalists might be uh, eager to push on this, because I actually think it's they see this as good, right? They see it as good that Ubisoft's games are are drawing inspiration from the world around us and, and attempting to show people the world, the politics of the world around us and trying to, and, and again, this isn't about swaying anybody's beliefs, but like if you are making a game set in the UK in a, in a, in a very distinctly post-Brexit UK environment with people being scanned in the streets and a rise of nationalism, and you say that isn't political, you are talking bollocks, basically. It's just, it's just that simple. And... And I think it disappoints people that the people in the big positions of influence in our industry are not willing to stand up and say, yeah, like we're engaging with the world now because games are a mature medium. Like we can't have it both ways. We can't say games are a mature medium, games are art, games are this, games are that, and then have people backing away from everything all the time. And, like when you, and you don't see this in film and you don't see this in other mature mediums. People, the biggest directors in the world, absolutely will engage with the fact that they're making political movies, that they're saying things, and and then they want people to think about politics and stuff as a result of their work. So I think that this is kind of the impetus behind this. It's not it's not uh, a play of gotcha journalism. It's not trying to get people to say things that will stir up these kind of vocal minorities. I actually think there is a, a genuine desire for uh, uh, within the press for 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 the people that make games to actually be honest and open about that what they're trying to achieve creatively, which which they're not doing for corporate. For, corp- for corporate reasons, which is really kind of disheartening. Yeah, yeah. and I think, I think too, this is a question that, that can get answered in games, too, all the time. Like, we have, we have tons. Of, we, I, I, I don't think I've specifically asked the question with the words, is your game political, necessarily. But we have, you know, our entire website is full of interviews where we ask developers, you know, what their game is trying to say about X, Y, or Z. And we get answers. And the thing is, we get a lot more answers from smaller developers, indie developers, and, like, AA stu- studios and things like that. They're willing to engage. And I think, yeah, I, I kind of... I kind of am inclined to agree with you. Like, I think I think there is kind of a weird thing going on where we we've had enough conversations where people have dodged questions about politics and games at the AAA level that there is sort of a degree of okay, well, I'm going to ask this and I'm going to get you on record as being unwilling to engage with me in this. Um, but at the same time, is kind of the fact that they're they they aren't willing to engage in that question. And I think if if I just went if I went up to a smaller developer, kind of at random, and said, "Hey, you know, is your game political?" They they would sort of understand the intent behind that that statement and be able to kind of answer or at least say, "Well, you know, not in a broad way, but here are some specific things it has to say." But but here there there is kind of a weird thing where AAA is just you know kind of. 
you know, w- wiggling around with it. And there, there was the weird thing. I, I was trying to think of this earlier, but there was the Q&A back in, like, June or July with Francois as well, where um, he pretty much, like, went on this whole thing where he said that, yeah, we're, you know, we're not necessarily trying to, you know, say anything with our games. And then, like, four days later, I think uh, someone from Watch Dogs said specifically, yeah, we're absolutely trying to say something. And it was just, it was just this kind of weird, like, like, contrast with what he had said just a few days earlier um within the same publisher i mean i think is i think i but i read you i read francois comments and i think we're arguing over semantics because ubisoft did say their game was political they just they said it wasn't and then they said but we're doing this which okay is them misunderstanding or misreading the term political or taking the political the term political in a different way but they did say that their game was political. I've got this, I'm trying to find it. I got this answer from Alan Core and I asked him about the politics in, in Brexit. And he said, um, and he was talking about how, I'm trying to hopefully find it. I can't find it in front of me at the moment. But he was basically saying that the, um, uh, uh, he takes every, he's talking about how it's all about, you know, it discusses mass surveillance. It talks about governments taking advantage of their people. It talks about how we're using technology to take greater control of people. Um, it, we're looking at the people protesting and why they're protesting and why they're angry about their lives. It's a worldwide thing. It's not just a UK thing. We want to do is watch us to give these keys to the players to explore all these things and understand them and maybe discover them a little bit. And that's political, right? He's given me an answer. I asked him what the game was about and he gave me an answer. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that was him engaging with the question. But it's just because they use the term, they start off by saying this isn't political. I think we immediately jump down the throat of that and actually don't read the full answer and go, well, actually, it is political because you've just yeah, said it. Yeah, but then I think, I think it's based later. on the question you asked. And I think you asked the question, which is roughly what Rob's saying, right? Whereas if you don't say, is this political? But you say, okay, are you going to, uh, are you going to show the hardship of life as a child soldier? The Call of Duty team will reply, go, of course we're going to show the life hardship. We're going to show this, we're going to show that. That is a political answer. You're just not scaring them by asking them directly, is your game political? You're trying to engage them with the subject matter of the game. This thrust of Robert Thies is all, stop asking this question, because all it does is give them an out. And the only, and I completely agree with you, Chris, save in one way, which I actually don't, I think that it, we are we are arguing over semantics, but I think it's the publishers that have done that. The publishers introduce the semantic merry-go-round to it, because they're like, our game isn't political, but it does do all of these things, and that isn't how we define political. There, that again, like I do feel like they kind of know that there is political is a broad term, but there is a way of getting out of engaging with it in that way by just by but because but again, it's about the question they're being asked too. So I think both sides have a part to play in this semantic, uh, the semantic uh, nature of this argument. Well, I deeply look forward to the flood of extremely well thought out answers we're going to get in the next six months as journalists start asking different questions other than is this political? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, sort of, I guess we wrap, wrap this, this topic up now, but I think kind of the main distinction is like, I think when you ask, when, when publishers get asked, is, is this game political? I think they confuse it with, is this game propaganda? Because a lot of them feel like we're, we're not telling you how to think, we're just showing you something. Um, and you do see that quite a lot. Again, um, yeah. Again, the the COO of Ubisoft Massive. Um, there's a there's a quote here from when he was speaking about the Division Two a while ago. We're not going out and saying you should vote for that person or you should not do this. But it's a political statement, of course, and we think that's important. But we're not writing it on somebody's nose. And I think that's it. When when we sort of discuss political, people think, what are we telling you to think, rather than here, are, here is something to think about, and that's, I think, 
like the the bog or like the tar pit that this discussion has kind of like this this wider discussion across the industry has just got really really bogged down in it's, it's this distinction between propaganda and sort of being engaged with sort of political themes and and what's going on in the world uh the world around us yeah it's sorry i know we're trying to kind of wind this down but that that is kind of another thing that came up both in that uh discussion and in uh multiple of francois talks about it um is he Ubisoft has this idea when this question comes up that they, they want to make a point that they're they're trying to show a whole bunch of different sides. Like Francois' dream is that, you know, he has this game where you can experience a situation from just absolutely every angle. And he's making a big deal out of that. And I think that's like kind of an odd thing to make a big deal out of because that's that's what that's like what a lot of that's basically what stories do, right? Like you read a book and yeah, you get, you know, maybe a single point of view character, but you're meeting all these other characters and hearing their points of view as well. It's not it's not this strange novel idea that you engage with a piece of art and you only see a single view and a single perspective the whole time and that's what's being hammered into your skull. So I thought I thought that was kind of an interesting strange response. Yeah, but uh, and but I think that that you know speaks to what what Hayden's saying, which is that there is a difference between political content and propaganda, um, and what um, and without those alternative points of view, it is propaganda. That's all it is. But that's not what anyone's asking about. And I think what Rob's piece says, and what what Hayden has been saying as well, is that journalists need to get a little bit smarter with how they're they're, they're approaching the subject. Because as Chris got out of uh, Alan Core, people are willing to discuss the, the, their subject matter, but just try not to frame it uh, in a way that that is a dog whistle for parts of the audience that AAA publisher really doesn't want to or can't afford to, uh, to upset. Well, on a on a slightly, actually, an extremely different note, uh, we also wanted to talk today about Nintendo's mobile portfolio, which got a new edition last month, Doctor Mario World, and we got some uh, data the other day about how that's been doing. Uh, Hayden knows about that. Does Hayden want to talk about that? I do, and the the diagnosis is not good. I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the lowest grossing Nintendo mobile launch so far by quite a long way. Um, I think the... So we, we've, we've done two stories on it, uh, courtesy of Sensor Tower. Um, and yeah, the, the first 72 hours uh, got 2 million downloads, which is okay. Um, you know, it's half of what Super Mario Run got, less than half of what Animal Crossing and Fire Emblem Heroes got. But a lot more than than uh, Dragalia Lost, which looked like it was going to be like sort of Nintendo's real damp squib. Uh, but like a few months later, and uh, oh sorry, uh, a month later, th- th- thirty days after launch, and it's got one point four million dollars revenue and seven point four million downloads. Um, which I'm sure there are a lot of developers out there who would be really pleased with that. But I think when you're launching a Mario game onto the most profitable platform in the entire industry you would be hoping for something a little bit better and um there there are some really interesting comparisons with it because like the the 7.4 million downloads is like that i'd say that's that's an okay number um but if especially if you compare it to dragalia lost which is nintendo's new mobile exclusive ip which launched last year after its first after its first 30 days only 1.6 million downloads but (laughs) 
<laughs> sort of the, the really interesting figure here is uh, Dragalia Loss got over $26 million in revenue in that period compared to Super Mario World's $1.4 million. So it's the, the problem that Mario seems to be running into is okay downloads, just terrible monetization, just people aren't really engaging with it in a way that they are with uh, Fire Emblem Heroes or Dragalia Lost or e I mean even Animal Crossing Pocket Camp is doing better. Yeah, it wasn't it like 19 cents per user which was maybe like it's like less than a third of the revenue per user that the Animal Crossing got and that's like the next next one up whereas Dragalia Lost had like $16 per user revenue. Um, yeah, it's like <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes, $16.50 for Dragalia Lost and yeah like you said 19 19 cents per install for Dr. Mario World. And it seems like Nintendo really struck big with Fire Emblem Heroes and have been kind of not really sure what they're doing since. Like, I, I think Dragalia Lost is quite a measured success. Like, when you take the numbers at face value, it doesn't look great, but it's worth remembering that it's only limited, it's only available, sorry, in fairly limited regions. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's available in maybe like nine or 12 regions, yeah. something it's like that. It's also its own IP, so it's got... right? Like, it didn't, I, I would expect a Mario game to do really well because it's Mario, but Dragalia, Dragalia Lost is just its whole, its, its own thing. The question that we now have then is, and, and I would say this, um, regard, like, there's different ways of looking at mo mobile success. Um, I think that Super Mario Run in terms of downloads was a big success. I think the Dragalia lost in terms, and I think Fire Emblem has been, Dragalia lost in terms of revenue per user was a big success. And I think Fire Emblem is the one that's got the balance of those two things the best. But actually, you would, you would expect any Mario game to be earning more than 20 cents revenue per user. And I, and I would say, I would expect any Mario game to be downloaded more than 7 million times in a month as well. Mario is the single most recognisable character in video games. Um, and Super Mario Run across one month was downloaded a lot more times than, uh, than Dr. So, Mario. So it's interesting this. So um, I think you have to think about brand and genre a little bit as well, because um, you're talking about a sort of sort of puzzle games tend to appeal to adults, um, women a lot, um, and um, kids. Uh, puzzle games less kids, but Mario Run was very much kids. Pocket Camp was very much kids, and obviously Fire Emblem is a little bit more hardcore. Um, and then there's also another thing to to factor in is you know, I found this quite interesting. Um, I found out uh, there is a, a merchandise company that I was having a very long conversation to. They have a lot of big licenses. Nintendo is one of them. Zelda is unsurprisingly their biggest Nintendo license. Number two is Metroid. Mario is quite far down the list. And it's because Mario is, is a, it's like Mickey Mouse. It's an iconic character that people recognize and everyone, you know, and the games are really good. But actually, when it comes to core fans that spend all of their time playing it and obsessing with it, it isn't as big as Nintendo's more hardcore franchises. I think there's an element of that. Um, there's also an element of I sometimes think Nintendo are caught between the origin. One of the, one of their reasons for supporting mobile games was um, the marketing impact of these mobile games. Right, the reason why Super Mario Run hasn't been a massive commercial success for Nintendo, yet they're still supporting it all the time because they and they you they do it around the launch of Mario Maker Two, a new Super Mario Brothers U, Mario Odyssey. They, 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 they use it as a marketing tool. It's in 300, 400, I don't know how many million, hundreds of millions of people's um, phones. So they're using that as a marketing thing, saying, hey, you like Mario Run? Play Mario Odyssey. And, and I'm not saying that Mario Odyssey and New Super Mario U's success is down to Mario Run, but they have been really successful. So it suggests, you know, there is, a, there is an element of that. So there's a marketing element to it as well. So it's always a little bit like, I always think Nintendo always need to be, I always wonder if, 
what the what the metric of success actually is for Nintendo for, for a game like Doctor Mario, which is which is an unusual brand, I must admit. It's not like you know, not one of the iconic Mario brands. Um, and I don't even know. I'm trying. I couldn't even work out how big. You know, I'm starting to wonder if maybe Nintendo are better off with, with some of their more hardcore games than they are in terms of making money than they are in terms of Mario Kart or Pokemon or or, or Zelda or anything. Or maybe not Zelda. It's quite core, but. But some of their more casual, there. if Yoshi's not a great character for mobile, but actually maybe Metroid might be. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a there's a little, it's a difficult one, but I would say this, right? So Dr. Mario is a, is a weird IP, um, a bit more niche. But the thing is, Nintendo isn't putting a Dr. Mario game out to get Dr. Mario fans to play the game. They're putting Dr. Mario out because to get Mar- people that recognize Mario to play the game. Nintendo's stated aim with its mobile games is to attract people that wouldn't actually be buying a Switch, for example, to to induct them into to its franchises and get them to, to level up or transfer over to to it to its hardware and its premium titles, for example. So I would say like the, the, the reason why Dr. Mario isn't doing well isn't because there aren't enough Dr. Mario fans out there, because Nintendo itself doesn't expect that to be. Nintendo wants Mario to pull people in. It doesn't matter whether he's wearing a doctor's costume or not. The thing with Dr. Mario is it didn't do that. Um, and also, so so on 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 the on the merchandise thing, I'm sure that Zelda is number one for a merchandise company. But the people that buy mer- Nintendo merchandise are hardcore Nintendo fans. Again, the, I, and I would say if you if you did Ipsos Mori survey of which is the most recognisable Nintendo character among people that aren't hardcore Nintendo fans, it's going to be Mario. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, but they. My point. My point was less about the recognize how re- you know it was less about the download numbers and was more about the revenue numbers, right? So the people that are Mario fans are or who know Mario are people like, you know, like, you know people who don't engage with Nintendo very often. Um, they're not that many hardcore fans that will be playing this game obsessively and want to spend money on it and that kind of stuff. They're the sort of more casual fans that perhaps aren't the whales that spend significant sums of money. And when I was talking about Dr. Mario being an odd IP, I don't mean the Mario IP there, I meant the genre. You know, if you're going to hook people into Mario, puzzle game perhaps isn't the, isn't the thing that's going to sell it to people. But, you know... Um, Mario Kart probably is. Uh, Mario Run, you know, it was downloaded by huge numbers of people. Clearly was, um, even if the monetization model didn't work, which is a shame, because I actually thought it was really good. I mean, what was Dr. Mario, though? The question I had, um, just quickly, sorry, the question I had was, was Dr. Mario an attempt by Nintendo to create a game using its most famous character in a genre that monetizes way better than Super Mario Run did? Was it, in effect, a response to the fact that Super Mario Run didn't work very well? Because puzzle game monetize well, um, and I and I took it to be that. So, and and if it, and if it was that, then it failed. Which and again, that brings us back to our central discussion, which is why are these games failing? I think Nintendo has kind of had a weird sort of scattershot tactic toward monetizing these mobile games. So, so looking at these. Um, here that they've done so far. I've played all of these except for Dragalia Lost, so I'm not I'm not super clear on how Dragalia Lost monetizes. But um, all of these except for that I've played, except for Fire Emblem Heroes, have really frustrating forms of monetization, right? Like Super Mario Run, I think actually for its monetization model did pretty well. We know that uh, premium games do not bring in as much money as free-to-play games with microtransactions. Super Mario Run is, for all intents and purposes, a premium game. You play, like, what, three levels or something? Three worlds, I think? Or, so you play a certain amount of levels for free, um, and then you pay to unlock the rest of the game. And so that's why its downloads are really high, because a lot of people downloaded it, played the free levels, and then dropped it. And then, you know, its monetization isn't super high, but I, it seems like it did decently well for what it was. Um, 
But then you have Dr. Mario World, and I played that. And the monetization in that game is really frustrating. It's a, it's kind of a matching game. Uh, like you know, I mean, it's, it's Dr. Mario. You've seen like with the pills and whatever, uh, matching the colors. But you get to a point like you have to spend energy in order to play these levels. And so you can play a, a decent chunk at the very beginning. But then you hit a point where you you can't really play for longer than a few minutes without having to stop and wait for yourself to recharge or pay real money. And so when I hit that point, I look at it and I'm like, well, I. I don't want to play this anymore this is just frustrating like if i can't play for more than a few minutes then i i don't care and that's so i, I get yeah so i get rid of it right and then animal crossing had not quite the same problem but sort of a similar one where even though you you can keep playing you know without without having to pay money the the whole purpose of this game is to get you know all these different little furniture items to decorate your camp and after a certain amount of time, you hit a point where if you're not putting real money into the game, you're running out of resources in order to acquire those items with any kind of speed. And they have these limited time promotions with these really cool things where if you want to get all of them, maybe not the only feasible, well, the only feasible way really to get every single thing that you want is to rely on random randomization and, you know, cross your fingers and hope that the box gives you the thing you don't have yet, and then also pay more money to open more boxes. And it's basically loot boxes. Um, it, 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 certain things are. Not, not the whole thing. It's, it added gacha mechanics a while back. Um, I don't know about Dragalia Lost, but then Fire Emblem Heroes has been really successful because you can, for the most part, you know, just keep on you know, playing the game and the matches take a little bit longer. So even if, you know, if I'm playing for 10 minutes, I can get through a couple of matches. Um, but then most of the monetization in that game surrounds getting more characters. And the characters are, you know, these... these extremely attractive familiar faces from different fire emblem games and they add like you know a certain amount of new ones every so often and that that's something that's you know fun for people they can keep playing the game with the characters they have they don't have to worry about it but this kind of collectible you know collect them all mentality or collect the ones that you specifically want is really i think more appealing and animal crossing has that too it wants you to know collect all of a furniture set or you know collect the things for your camp but there are so many things to get in animal crossing it's just overwhelming and there's no way you could possibly get all of them but fire emblem heroes at least the last time i played it kind of dangled that in front of you that you could you know at least get the ones you wanted uh sort of reasonably um or get really cool cool characters anyway so i I don't know. I think I think there's sort of an element of Nintendo doing a really scattershot approach to monetization and finding one thing that hit and a bunch of things that didn't, and then not not repeating the thing that hit. That's partly a genre thing because um, you know Candy Crush has that model for puzzle games, and it's like for someone like I don't know, my mum, who's a big Candy Crush player, um, she plays um, she plays a little bit, and then she plays a little bit every day. And I think, and it's the same with kids' games. The idea is you sort of you get them to play a little bit every day rather than play for long periods of time, which I think which Fire Emblem will be trying to do because it targets the core. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's mobiles are you know wild west. Even Nintendo struggle with it. Just shows. So these approaches are largely not working out for them. But what Nintendo IP would you want to see come to mobile, like in, in any form whatsoever? Um, I'm personally bummed out at how big of a cash grab Pocket Camp turned out to be because I love Animal Crossing. Um, but I want to go kind of a weird route. I would love to see Art Academy on mobile. What happened to Art Academy? I mean, I've never heard of it, so that's probably what. No, 
it was on the DS. And I, like, I think this would not work on mobile at all because it kind of requires a stylus to do right. But so, like, Art Academy is, the, it's a Nintendo IP. And you you draw things. And it, like, teaches you how to draw well. Um, I think, like, the regular Art Academy games were kind of challenging. Um, but there was a Pokemon Art Academy that was the best. It was, like, simple, cute, um, geared towards, like, kids and casual people like me who can't draw. So I would love, like, an Art Academy game on mobile with Nintendo characters. You know, like, draw Yoshi, draw Mario. Like, that'd be really great. Um, but, yeah, you need, like, a stylus for it to work. And so that probably wouldn't be good. Yeah. Well, I've got two, actually. And I'm not even a big Nintendo guy. Um, but I think Advance Wars would work quite well on mobile if you didn't mm. have to... To worry about the business model. Advance Wars would probably work for the same reason that Fire Emblem would work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that could be one. But actually, the one I'd like to see most is WarioWare. Um, <gasps> there's there's a there's a mobile series called I think it's called like Hidden My Game by Mom. It's like this. It's made in Japan. Um, it's very sort of poorly translated, as you can tell by that. And you're basically you're this you're a kid who wants to play video games. His mom's very strict and doesn't want him to play video games. And it's a series of like images, of image puzzles. And you've got to find where the console is in the room before your mum catches you, basically. And it is starts out fairly simple and then becomes increasingly bizarre and weird in terms of how you need to discover the console, the things you need to avoid to do it. It's great. I mean, there's like five of these games. Take about an hour to get through. And it reminds me so much of WarioWare. Um, and obviously, like companies like Nintendo don't think in those terms when it comes to mobile anymore because it's all about... How do you monetize this thing? Um, and I don't think there's any real way of, well, I don't even want to get into how you would monetize a WarioWare game, but that that's really what I want mobile games to be. I want them to, to, do, to, to entertain and delight me for like an hour and a half, and that's it. I don't want to play them month after month, day after day after day, but that's kind of not really what mobile has turned out to be for big companies. But I think WarioWare could be fantastic on mobile. At least it could definitely eat up a train journey in, in no time at all. Um, for me, um, I mean, obviously, I normally, I jokingly answer this question with um, Excite Truck um, because Excite Truck is is one of my favourite games Nintendo ever released. They did a sequel to it and never released it in the UK, and I was very, very, very upset. Um, but actually, it wouldn't really work well on mobile because it's a racing game, and they're often they're often not great. Um, I would um, say probably Mario versus Donkey Kong. Um, those sort of mini marching games they do are I love those games. They're good fun. Um, they're quite entertaining, as is like things like Box Boy. Um, although I, I feel you, you need a controller for that. Um, those sort of strange sort of puzzle games that sort of appeared on the 3DS and the DS and stuff, they would work really well on mobile. And you wouldn't even need to do much to get them to work. Yeah. You said racing games would not work on mobile very well, but they're d- apparently doing a mobile Mario Kart, so I guess we'll see, right? Yeah, it, wouldn't it be depressing? Be, be, that won't be for me. That, <laughs> wouldn't, it be be de- for... wouldn't it be depressing if it was just like they just ripped off CSR racing and you just had to choose which car parts go on your cart and then the cars race themselves? Wouldn't that be depressing? Well, I think they Probably do race themselves. <laughs> I think in Mario Kart you do. I think that's how it works. Excite Truck was all like race, raging high scores. But I think in Mario Kart, it's it's a bit like I hated Angry Birds Go. I really hated that game, um, and um, I know it's done very well for Robio, so you know. But I hated it, and so I know Mario Kart on the iPhone or whatever will probably do really well for Nintendo. But I'm not remotely interested in it. Um, but it's not for me because I've got Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. I think uh, the only mobile Mario uh, or Nintendo game that I would be interested in would be one that's basically just Twitter, but all of instead of being full of like nazis and angry video gamers it's just uh like 
people from or N Nintendo characters, and you know they just tweet little things about what they're doing about their day, and I could like become best friends with Luigi, and we could you know we could like chat to each other and like share selfies of our days out and stuff like that, and just kind of something I could just endlessly scroll through as I just kind of like stare and just contemplate you know the, the inevitable. So like Mitomo, <laughs> but not with real people. Yeah, yeah, right. It's just the Miiverse. Yeah, 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 basically, like like Mitomo, but not with real people. <laughs> And just all of all of Nintendo's famous characters just on a big Twitter-like thing that I don't have to like really play. You just kind of infinitely scroll down. Super Twitter that's, Brothers. That's, that's... Yeah, yeah, Super Twitter Brothers. That's definitely <laughs> my sort of speed when it comes to mobile games. Weirdly enough, that does sound like quite a Nintendo idea. So maybe you'll see that. Yeah. <laughs> Get in touch, Nintendo. Yeah. Call me. Like Mario, Mario, Instagram pictures of his dinner sounds exactly like something Nintendo would do. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I I deeply want this game now. Thank you, Hayden. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, <laughs> you can always go back and listen to previous episodes of this podcast on all good podcasting platforms, and you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. <laughs> <laughs>